Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. Thank you so much for joining Michigan Minds. I'm really excited to have the opportunity to talk with you today. So can you start by introducing yourself and sharing a little bit about your role at the University of Michigan? My name is William Elliott. I'm a professor in the School of Social Work. Um, I've been here for six years now, and I'm the director of the Joint PhD program. And I'm also director of a center called the Center on Access, Education, and Inclusion here at the School of Social Work. Thank you. And in what areas does your research focus? First, we'll start off broadly, broadly around poverty and wealth inequality and educational inequality. More specifically, I've done a lot of, have a lot of research projects across the country around children's savings accounts, which I'm sure is something we'll talk more about later. And uh, college debt, I've written several books on uh, college debt and around educational outcomes and things like that. So kind of a mix of all of them. And I'm trying to really figure out how they all blend together. Wonderful. Thank you. You recently published a new report and case study titled Unleashing the Power of Children's Savings Accounts, Doorway to Multiple Streams of Assets. Can you tell us a bit more about this work, including your inspiration for researching the power of children's savings account and the process of conducting this research? Yes, really. Again, more broadly, my inspiration was my own childhood in, in the way I grew up. I grew up in poverty uh, with, um, you know, a sense of homelessness and, and uh, really was uh, poor for, I don't know, the first 25 years of my life. And so uh, ended up going into the military afterwards, so forth and so on. But, but those, those kinds of experiences really uh, gave me an interest in figuring out what do we do about poverty? And, and originally, I, I started thinking more along the welfare lines and around adult poverty, uh, but um, really began to think about it as kind of something starting in childhood and, and how do we kind of correct it for children and, and so we don't see cycles of poverty. And so that really uh, gave me interest. And there's one little interesting story. Um, in my childhood, like I said, I grew up in a really poor neighborhood around poor people, but there was this one kid whose father had a savings account for him and was saving for him to go to college. And he would always tell everybody in the neighborhood. And we always thought a little bit differently about the kid because they had this plan for him to go to college. They were saving for him to go to college. And like I said, at the time, I didn't even, even when I started my master's program, I didn't really understand that relationship. But later in life, now I'd seen how that kind of left an impression on me that this kid would have this account, how it affected everybody in the community and how they thought about him. And, and how he thought about himself and how his dad thought about him and his expectations for him. Like the power of kind of having this early uh, asset account was really important. The kid ended up going to Cornell University, Ivy League school, and uh, doing quite well in life and largely. And he was just seen so differently by us all just because of that account, in which they didn't have enough money in that account to fully pay for an education at Cornell University. But it was just the fact that they had this different set of expectations for the kid that really mattered. And so, when I first started studying children's savings accounts, which are basically a, a savings platform for low-income families to build wealth for their kids. And why it's called, for, why I would say it's even, it's in mainstream 529 accounts most of the time. So there's just statewide savings plans. But if you know anything about the statewide savings plans, they tend to be 
primarily used by upper middle class and high income families. Very few poor families use them. And so the CSA builds on that infrastructure. However, it provides families with initial deposit, uh, sometimes very small, $25, sometimes a little bit larger, like a thousand. And then what I'm really thinking about is something even much larger in, in a neighborhood of a $8,000, $10,000, $14,000 initial deposit in these accounts. So, so that helps bridge the gap for low-income kids. And then they also have incentives that they offer. And in this paper, I'm starting to talk about, because a lot of the focus tends to be, if you say children's savings account, you think about families saving on their own. But it's really not the main way that uh, CSAs build wealth for families. Because low-income families, at the end of the day, while there's randomized control evidence, experimental evidence that they can save and do save, they save small amounts of money, right? Because uh, they have very little money left over after they pay for their basic needs. And so uh, they're not gonna save the way to college and that's not the point. They're not gonna save the way out of poverty and that's not the point. But the point is, is that once they have these accounts in place, they provide a mechanism for providing a, a wealth transfer to these families in a, in a sense of a larger deposit into these accounts. But then it also allows for third party spending in these accounts. And so you can think about, we've seen cases like in, in, in um, Indiana where uh, a traditional scholarship donor, a family would give a scholarship rather than giving it, saying, here's a promise of money. We're gonna give you an early award scholarship. We're gonna put this money into your CSA when the kid's still young, get to grow up with it. And so this scholarship money is now being dumped into this account early on. The kid gets to grow up with that money. And, and so we can begin to think, and this is very, in this case, it's very targeted to certain communities in Wabash County. Uh, and so when these accounts are in place, so a state like Pennsylvania, every kid, about 135,000 births per year, gets an account. And once those accounts are in place, we can start thinking about not only family saving, which is a really a smaller portion of it. We can think about scholarships being put into these accounts. We can think about people who want to donate money. They can put money into these accounts for specific types of kids, low-income kids, whatever, right? This community, that community. And so that, that really is kind of unleashing the power of CSAs is going beyond just the personal savings or even just a federal wealth transfer, but thinking about also local philanthropists being able to put money into the accounts, employers being able to put money in the accounts, policies that we're now using that aren't being spent, being redirected into these accounts. So once the account's in place, you can think of multiple streams of assets flowing into these accounts. And that's the only way we're really gonna tackle poverty and wealth inequality is, is we need a, a large federal investment, but we also need to have many other streams flowing into these accounts. And once they're in place, we can do that. Yeah, thank you very much. So can you share with us a few key findings from this report? Yeah, and this is a different kind of report because it's a philosophical report in many ways, but there are findings that are listed within it. Uh, and so it's not that it was original uh, data analysis, but it was bringing together a lot of the data analysis that existed, some of which I've done, and bringing it into this report and then trying to, to, to shape it to help people understand how we can think about these accounts slightly differently. Uh, one interesting finding, and in, 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 uh, I don't have the exact numbers, but Tom Shapiro and his team did a simulation study. And so in one of these accounts, if you put roughly $7,000 into the account as an initial deposit, 
And then you did it in a progressive way, which means that uh, the poorest people would receive the $7,000 and then the, 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 the most wealthy people would receive nothing. And, and, and it would break down in increments in between here and there. That it would reduce the uh, black white wealth gap by uh, 23% would also reduce the Hispanic uh, white wealth gap by a similar uh, number. And so if we can divest, and this, this doesn't count any of these other streams that I'm talking about. This is, would be just if the federal government made an investment. And some people would say, well, that sounds far-fetched, right? But currently, Senator Booker uh, has his baby bond proposal, uh, for those who are familiar with it, in which case he's, he's, he's all, it's also progressive. And what he uh, proposes to do is to put... If I have it exactly right, $2,000 in the first year, and then every year after that, $1,000 into a kid's account until they turn 18. So from birth until they turn 18, we get these deposits. Now, I might have that reversed. It might be 1,000 initially and then 2,000 every year after, uh, but it is those numbers. And so they would end up with roughly $46,000 in their account when they left. And so that's one example of, and we really think that these baby bonds would be best delivered through a CSA, through a children's savings account. We can get into why we think these are kind of the best vehicle for wealth transfers. Also, Senator Casey from Pennsylvania, uh, Senator Booker's from New Jersey, uh, Senator Casey uh, from Pennsylvania uh, proposed what I would call, what he calls a large dollar CSA, children's savings account, as part of his five freedoms. And in that account, uh, they would put $500 a, a month and it would also be progressive. So it only low income people would receive the account. So $150,000 or $100,000 um, in salary per year or below, we, we get one of these accounts and they get $500 in that account. And it would also then be reduced from there. And so uh, I believe it's roughly about $14,000 would end up in these accounts. But my point is, is that the $7,000 that was in, in Shapiro's uh, simulation is actually small compared to some of these other examples. And it, reduced, it would reduce the wealth uh, yeah, by about 23% in, in both the case of, of African-Americans and Hispanics. Um, so that's one, to me, important finding in it. I, th I think another set of important findings that I talk about, because I think one of the things we're doing is bringing in these different policy proposals, right? And, and, how, and showing how they have connectedness and how the CSA can help bring them together so we can build a bigger coalition for these things. Like baby bonds and large dollar CSAs are really trying to do very similar things. Another part of that is the free college movement. I'm sure you've heard of Biden's proposal for free college. Usually this has to do with free, free two-year college. Um, and then you've also heard in Michigan, particularly, about promise programs. So Kalamazoo's promise program where the kids, they live in Kalamazoo, they get free college by the time, you know, if they, if they qualify for college, they'll pay for the college. These kind of programs could also fit within a CSA structure. They would require this transition from a kind of promise of program to early award, put the money in the account early on. But a set of data that to me is really important around that is, is the findings around that low-income kids don't get the same return on a degree as high-income kids. And so uh, they don't earn as much income. They don't have as much wealth uh, as, as higher-income kids. And what this really speaks to is the fact that a degree is not enough. And so programs that only seek to kind of address the tuition problem uh, are going to fall short in a number of ways. A, some kids don't prepare for college because by giving them the promise of college, if you grew up like I did, 
the future is not because you were born different, it's because you live different. And what I mean by that is, is you go to Walmart, you go to checkout, and you don't have enough money, you have to put half your food away that you need. Your parents say you're going to the movies, you don't have money to go to the movies. Christmas comes around, everybody's getting presents, you're not getting presents. There's so many things that speak in your life and tell you that paying for college is probably going to be really difficult for you to do. And, and that thinking that far in advance is something really hard for you to do. It's not because you're not future-oriented, because your environment hasn't provided you with the institutional structures you need to think in the future, right? What assets do, one of the things we talk about in this paper is that assets provide families and kids with the ability to purchase things in the future, right? So they, when they start saving for college, it's as though they are beginning to purchase a piece of college. And so uh, unlike the poor kid, you know, the future is very abstract and foreign, it's not tangible to them. For the rich kid, you know, you get the Mitt Romneys of the world who say, well, to the, to the Ohio State University students, you can just simply borrow the money off your family or whatever else when you go to college. Right? That's the reality. That's not a bad reality. We just want poor kids to have some kind of sense of that same reality, which would allow them to begin to engage early on on things like college starting early. And so can you tell us why it's so important that families start saving early on when their child is young? Or kind of what advice would you give to parents in regards to setting up savings accounts for their children? I have to say this is an ironic question. I say it's ironic because the second half of the title of the paper talks about that, but it talks about it in the sense of uh, it's important to start these programs early. But even when families aren't saving early, right? So sometimes in these CSA programs, because so much focus is given on the family contribution part, we think that's the most important piece of it. But, but what I'm trying to say in this paper, it really isn't. And so why it's valuable for these programs to start from birth, even if families are born into a culture in America where we don't start planning for college to much later, I must say, over the last 10 years, we've seen quite the reversal among high-income families. They are starting to plan and invest in education much earlier. You've probably heard the story of someone in your family or, or someone else's family who said, uh, it's been in the papers too, why don't you just work your way through college? Right? You could pay for it that way. Because that was the reality of 30 years ago. You literally could do that, right? You could get a job while you're in college and pay your tuition and you could go. That's, that's just not the reality we now live in. But, but, but there's still vestiges of that, right? There's still remnants of that mindset that we can begin to plan for college much, much later in life and save for it and stuff, right? And so starting these programs doesn't mean uh, that presto, all of a sudden, all that culture evaporates and people just start saving in them. Part of what we're trying to do is change these cultural beliefs and mindsets of we begin to prepare for our kids' futures in the future. <laughs> no, you have to start for that even before they're born. And then we're also trying to say it's probably not all on the family, right? And so you hear that it takes a village to raise a kid. We're fond of saying that. But that also means financially. Right? And we don't think about that very much. And what these accounts allow for is even if family is not beginning to save early on, if you get that large additional deposit by the federal government, if you have the account 
you can um, begin to have these different flows and streams of assets going in there, even if the family's not saving. And what do you know about your 401k plan? Just making a difference of starting to save in your 401k when you're 20 years old compared to when you're 30 years old, you're talking thousands and thousands of dollars lost. It's the same for this kid, right? That if we don't start saving and investing and putting money into these accounts early on, that's they lose so much money in the long term. But but again, it's not just about the family saving, but it's about having a community account for us to invest in all of our kids. It also provides a very trusted way for doing that. Like some of the things you hear about among even yourselves, you, nowadays you drive to to Wendy's or McDonald's or whoever, right? We're not advertising for anybody, but whoever, whoever group you want to pick. And they, they always ask now for some kind of donation. But, but, but then you hear the stories that like only a small percentage of that donation actually gets to the people who need it. Well, when the CSA, it's an account in the kid's name for the kid. So if you donate, if that, like that donor who decided in Indiana, rather than giving that scholarship at the end to put that money in early on, he or she knows that that money is going directly into that kid's account, that that kid will have it to access and to use it. Not only do they know that, eventually when the kid's old enough, they will also know that. And so they grow up with this sense of, I'm flying around the bend of life Think about yourself being in a car, flying around a bend really fast. Now I'm flying around a bend of life and I'm driving. So the fact that it's going very fast doesn't bother me as much because I feel like I'm in control. I'm driving my life because I have my account. I have my money. For some people, their families aren't going to be as supportive. They're not going to be in a position to really help them. But that's okay because I have some control over this myself. And that's really kind of what we're trying to do with these CSAs, right? And growing up with that sense of perceived control over your destiny and your life, that it is about my effort and ability, understand that too. Like we're not trying here to eliminate or distort the American dream by giving low-income kids some handout. What we're really trying to do is level the playing field so that their behind start doesn't affect their effort, their sense of their effort and ability and what they can do with it. If I decide that, my effort and ability in mainstream institutions like financial institutions or education system will not be rewarded by my effort and ability, will not reward my effort and ability the same. I'm going to put that effort and ability somewhere else because it's more logical. It makes more sense. Well, I'll get the, the real return on my effort and ability, right? We want them kids to grow up with is a sense that if I invest here, it'll be rewarded like everybody else's. And that's why that data is so important about the fact that these low-income kids and, and minority kids, when they get a degree, they're not getting the same return on a degree as other kids who get the same degree. And I don't want to make it just about race, because it really is about low-income kids more broadly, because there's kids growing up in the Appalachian Mountains who get degrees and don't get the same return, on them, in part because when you have an account and you grow up with assets and you grow up with this wealth, what happens? You pay less for college, means you go into less debt. But it also means, and this is where I think CSAs need to be widened, and we do see some of this in Senator Casey's bill and even with baby bonds, is that it goes beyond just college, right? Because when this person comes out who has some wealth, it's not only they get their degree and don't come out with debt, and so they feel like they can start saving and doing things early on, but it's also because they don't have to pay back this debt. But it's also the fact that they have some money for down payment on the house. 
So they buy it in a better neighborhood and they, have, they owe less on it. So they already have more of an asset in that house from the start than the other person who delayed buying that house because they don't feel like they're in a position to buy a house because they got all their student debt and everything else and they have to wait. And then they buy it in the worst neighborhood because they don't have a, a large down payment or anything. All these things are factoring in. This is why in the beginning, I also said that we're trying to bring together how does education work? A lot of people in education arena will say, well, education builds wealth. And that's true. And people in the wealth arena will say, wealth gets you an education. The fact is they work on each other. But very few of our policies actually treat them as though they work together, right? And so if we want our education system to be the great equalizer in society we say it's supposed to be, we also have to make sure that these kids are getting a really strong return on their degree or an equal return on their degree that other kids are getting. And I understand if you're a social worker, there should be an equal return on having a social work degree. It's not gonna be the same as being a doctor, right? But the point is, if I am a doctor, I should get the same return as other doctors. If I am a social worker, I should get the same return as other social workers. And so these things really play together. And we have to have policies that can help people understand, see, and to work together. Thank you so much. So Social Work Month is actually celebrated in March, and it's a time to focus on the invaluable services social workers provide to an array of sectors, including hospitals and mental health centers, federal, state, and local government, schools, community centers, and social service agencies. Can you talk a bit about the importance of recognizing social workers for the work that they do? Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting profession uh, because it is often minimalized, not only uh, also within the academic arena. Uh, and so uh, in, in, in it's hard to get into policy spaces as a social worker and stuff. And so I think it's extremely important because they serve or they're supposed to serve the most disadvantaged in society, right? They're, they're the voice and the assistance to those who who need most help, right? And, and that's one of the reasons why they're, they're diminished as a profession in some ways, because they are serving people who have less resources to recognize the service that they're getting, less of a platform to say the kinds of services that they're getting and what social workers are doing for them, but then also because uh, they're the kind of people that society talks about as undeserving in many cases, right? In our social safety net, social welfare system, we often talk about, you know, the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. And unfortunately, many of the people that we see serve tend to fall into that undeserving category. And so you're not going to receive the same kind of recognition, even though this is the people that we really need to help in society to get to get moving forward. So, so I think it's very important. And I think it's also important within the dynamics of what they make, what a social worker makes compared to other professions. Uh, it's kind of like teaching in that sense, right? We don't pay our teachers very much in many areas. And so it's hard to get the best to come into teaching. It can be the same thing in social work. It's, it can be hard to attract the best of the best because of the return that they're getting for, for doing their services. And yet we need the best of the best in those areas. And so I think those are some reasons why it's really important to recognize uh, the importance of social work, but then also for social workers to continuously remind themselves of who they're supposed to be serving 
and, and why it's important that they serve them. Because there's pressure on the, the profession of social work to be seen as more, and that can lead to them wanting to serve or make more. And so the make more part can make you want to serve more rich clientele as a counselor or whatever else. And as the kind of beacon or advocate for the poor, uh, it can, it, it's also very important that we make sure that we're championing their causes, right? That we have it at the forefront of what our mission is. And, and to keep that at the forefront is to be out there and, and, and serve the poor people, the disadvantaged people in society, even when there really isn't as much return on that investment from a monetary standpoint or from a professional standpoint. And that can be difficult. You can lose track of that as a profession and as, as individuals. For sure. Thank you very much. As the podcast comes to a close, what is one thing you hope listeners remember from our conversation today? I'm just getting warmed up. That there's a lot more. This podcast is going to end, but there certainly is a lot more to this discussion and a lot more to talk about. But um, but I, I think also it's just that children's savings accounts aren't a silver bullet. There are, there are no silver bullets in the room, but they can be a really strong and important platform for delivering much needed wealth transfer to poor people in a way that not only provides them with money because it's not just about the money, but the research has shown that these accounts, even when there's small amounts of money in them, produce a lot of asset effects, we call them, which are things like kids who have accounts, you know, parents who have accounts are more likely to expect to go to college, which we know is very important for kids going to college. Uh, mothers have less depression, which we uh, know is really important, that kids have better social emotional development. And these are all randomized control styles that parental practices change, right? And so, so it's not just about giving them the money, but it's also about changing the way they see the world, how they're seen by the world through these accounts. And, and so, uh, and, and, and the opportunity to bring everybody together so, so that it's not just this individual trying to finance college or get the kid prepared for college, that it really can be this kind of community uh, engagement thing that spans across different domains, education, poverty, wealth, right? Dr. Elliot, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Um, it has been an absolute honor to learn from you. Um, I think we have highlighted some very important topics. So thank you so much for joining us and sharing your research with us. Thank you for having me. It's a, a great honor to have a chance to, to be on this podcast. And um, if anybody has any questions or anything, yeah, feel free to reach out. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.